All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. As we saw in the last episode, soon after the founding of Wired magazine, it was decided that Wired needed a major web presence. Andrew Anker was recruited to write a business plan and then launch a website, which would eventually become hotwired.com. Again, as we've learned, Hotwired was among the first standalone media websites. And it pioneered a great many things, not the least of which were the first banner ads. In this episode, Andrew gives us some wonderful insights into the early days of Wired, going back all the way to the magazine's funding and founding, as well as the evolution of Hotwired, Suck, Hotbot, and other early web properties he helped bring to life. So, I hope you enjoy this exceptional conversation with Andrew Anker. Andrew Anker, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. You're welcome. Good to be here. So I wanted to start off, um, you, uh, your background, you, you actually come from Wall Street in a way. You, um, you, you went to college for business and finance, is that right? Yeah, I was an economics major at uh, school. Uh, actually, I, I went pre-med. Um, as all the men in my family had been doctors for a couple of generations. And within about a year, I realized that I actually was much more interested in, in being a business person. And um, I'd always loved media. I'd always loved technology. And, and, and sort of, you know, at the time, those were two very different things. Um, this is, uh, you know, I graduated in 87. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I came out and did what a lot of people in New York City in the 80s did, which is I went and, uh, and was a banker. For, you were with uh, First Boston, is that right? With First Boston, uh, I ended up at a boutique firm called Sterling Pio, um, which was uh, made up of a couple of uh, ex-First Boston folks, a uh, small seven-person shop in San Francisco. Um, and, and it was fun because as you know, former First Boston people, we, we had access to and did a lot of the sort of big deals. We did the AirTouch spinoff of, from Pacific Telesis, and so, you know, 18 billion dollar or so uh, spinoff. 
Um, but we also had the flexibility to do things that were, you know, what a, a big investment bank would never do. And, you know, the sort of relevant case uh, in this in this instance was that uh, Jane, Jane Metcalf and Louis Rossetto, the founders of Wired, walked in one day looking for money. And um, and, you know, I was immediately smitten by the idea. And um, and so, I mean, we were we were simultaneously raising a uh, sort of what ended up being about an eight hundred thousand dollar launch round for Wired magazine and doing an 18 billion dollar spinoff where the fees we would make. Uh, were were ten times what the amount we were raising for Wired, um, but it was a fun fun sort of uh, small shop where we could we could do both of those kinds of things and really play to both sides of our um, of our brain. Can can we go into a little bit? Um, you know the the Wired financing. Did you work on on helping get them financing directly, or were you just around generally? No, I I worked on it directly. That was my sort of entree into Wired. Um, what what happened, in fact, was that I had done a startup in between First Boston and joining this boutique that was related to um, sort of cable television advertising. Uh, it didn't go well. The, you know, the startup ended up uh, getting shut down. Um, but, you know, the, it, it did help inform how I saw advertising and a lot of the things that we then did in Hotwired because we were tr- essentially trying to build in cable with all of these remote sort of cable systems this sort of very targeted network where you would take the best system in Chicago and the best system in New York and the best system in LA and create this high income network. And then you could take, you know, the sort of college towns in those cities and create a college network and uh, trying to do this with technology that wasn't quite there yet for the cable industry. Um, And when that didn't work, I went back to banking to replenish my coffers. Um, But what it meant was, was then when Wired came around, um, I sort of already had this, you know, really detailed thought process about how you could slice and dice people, you know, for lack of a better way, or let's say audiences of people, um, and so helped inform a lot of what I did. So, so my entree to Wired was this as a fundraiser. In fact, my parents put in the first twenty five thousand dollars of the round that we raised, and um, uh, and after I had had spent another year or two in banking and made enough money that I could afford to go do a startup because at that time you took a much lower salary at startups. Um, then I was able to leave. And so I, I actually started working with Wired in 1992 as a fundraiser. And I uh, sort of officially joined the company in March of 1994. Um, Lewis and Jane had an, a notoriously difficult time launching Wired. When when they come in to see you, do they always, already have the, the money from Nicholas Negroponte? Or what, what, what state were they at when, when you started working with them? Yes, they had. Um, so yes, to both your questions, they, they had had a really difficult time. Um, this is 1990, 1991, 1992. It was the first Gulf War. There was a recession. Um, media itself wasn't doing well at that point. Rupert Murdoch almost went bankrupt himself. Uh, in fact, um, some of the guys I had worked with at First Boston were working on the Murdoch um, sort of restructuring. Um, so it was just a pretty bad time to be raising money. Um, and, um, and, and so they came in and, um, uh, you know, it was one of those things that for me was just sort of completely obvious and, and it was a very easy, uh, very easy sort of fundraising to sort of get behind, you know, we had to talk in the, in the partnership a little bit about it. Um, but, um, but they, they had definitely struggled to raise money and, um, you know, Nicholas got it. There was another guy, Charlie Jackson, um, who was a software, uh, entrepreneur who'd made some money already. 
Um, and, and he sold his company Silicon Beach Software, which was a sort of 80s Mac company. And so those those were the only two investors in the company at the point we we sort of joined up. And what that had done is that had let Wired get its initial team of eight people. Uh, it had a prototype. It had a uh, sort of the beginnings of, of issue one. Um, but, you know, the thing about magazines, needless to say, is you need paper, uh, ink and postage to get them out. Um, and so the, essentially the fundraising that we we led uh, at that point was to get the first two or three issues out and, and get the advertising money starting to flow and, and get to the point where they, there could be a story that you could then go raise sort of a, a, a more of an expansion round. Was was there pitch that just the, you know, uh, Rolling Stone for the computer generation or is that too simplistic? Like what what, what were they exactly pitching in terms of their vision for the magazine? Yeah, they they were pitching. I mean, there's a lot of ways to say it, and and Rolling Stone for the computer generation was was one way. But the more interesting way to think about it with Rolling Stone, and this is one of the great lines from the business plan, is that if Rolling Stone covered the music industry the way computer magazines covered the computer industry, Rolling Stone would be, would be about amps and wah wah pedals, and that's like a direct quote from the line uh, from the, from the business plan, and and it's this idea that. In, in other types of areas, um, you know, the, the culture is driven by people. You know, you, you, you specifically read Rolling Stone magazine to understand the people. And you go back to the other influential magazines of their eras, like Playboy, they're about people. And um, computer magazines up until Wired were trade magazines. And they were great, you know, when you wanted to buy a, a PC or know which modem to get or what, what monitor um, had the best specs. And and the whole back of the magazine was essentially a bunch of classified ads with equipment parts and you know memory boards, um, and and not a single piece of consumer advertising had ever existed in a computer magazine, uh, because computer magazines talked to the computer makers, and the the parts manufacturers, and 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 that was really a very closed system, and so you know besides this idea of Rolling Stone for the computer era. The, the real sort of center of the of the business plan was this idea that the people who are driving the computer revolution, and not just from a you know computer company standpoint, but but from a corporate standpoint, um, they're the most important people uh, in in the organization driving change. You know, there was another line in the business plan that talked about um, that guy down the hall that everybody goes to when they want to buy a new gadget, that guy down the hall who sets up the printer and the network, the guy down the hall who you talk to when you want to know, um, the sort of, you know, whatever it was, the new cell phone, although there weren't that many cell phones at that point. And, and that guy down the hall is actually the most important person in your organization. And, and it was that idea of, of sort of, as Lewis used to put it, holding a mirror up, to the people who were the wire generation and saying, you are very important. You know, you're not a nerd. You're not a geek. You're not this sort of, this sort of revenge of the nerds kind of, kind of group. You're actually the people who are driving change and the future. Um, that was really the center point. It's this sort of move it from technology centric and, and equipment centric to people centric model. And, um, and that that was a cultural thing. And that was a thing that would have consumer advertising in it. And, um, you know, the thing that we tracked very closely for the magazine and then also for Hotwired when we launched it was the, the percentage mix of consumer advertising and tech advertising because we, we had to get some tech. I mean, there was just not enough of, a, of, a, of an audience to, to advertise um, uh, only consumer products. And it took us a little bit to get that. But, um, 
But we really wanted to lead with consumer as much as possible and say, this is a mainstream magazine. It's just everybody else doesn't know that, that they're mainstream yet. What were your impressions of Lewis and, and Jane and, and Lewis specifically? I, I know that you ended up you know, working for him for several years, but um, you know, what was it about him and his vision that, that made you eventually want, want to join it? I think as much as anything else, it was the obviousness of it to me, you know, because I was one of those people. I was the guy down the hall who people came to to ask advice or to set up printers or to figure out technology. And so when you have somebody who who comes in and says sort of essentially what you're doing is good, what you're doing is important. Um, you know, I, I literally thought the second I, I probably got a paragraph into the business plan before going, this has to happen. Um, you know, there, there's, and, and I became a VC later in my life and, and it becomes very easy to talk yourself out of everything you see and to say no. And, and, and Wired was the first and, and still to this day, the only business plan I saw that was just so compelling that, um, you know, it, it was just clear that there was a story there and, you know, Lewis had a lot of passion about it. Um, you know, there was things that he talked about in our first meeting that I had uh, quite honestly never heard of, like Marshall McLuhan. And he spent a fair bit of time talking about all the things McLuhan said and how they were finally coming due. And I sort of shook my head like all good investors and acted like I knew what I was talking about, which I didn't. Um, but I went and found out what he meant and who it was. And, you know, and it sort of became something that was really having to learn, I want to say a new language, but certainly a new dialect. Because, you know, I knew a lot about tech already, but um, the, the culture of tech, the philosophy of tech is not something I had appreciated as much. And, and Lewis is a philosopher in that way, you know, and really saw it for what it was. So walk me through the steps of, so you joined uh, and started working with Wired even before the hot Wired idea uh, comes up. Is that right? Yeah. So what happened was, is we, we put the money together in, in 2000, sorry, 1992, the, the magazine's first issue came out in January of 1993 around, around Macworld mm -hmm. and was almost an instantaneous success. You know, CNN and, and everybody was was coming through to, to take pictures and talk about what was going on. And, um, and, and it was great. But one of the criticisms that was leveled at the first issue of the magazine was that there was no mention of online. Um, Wired actually was online at that point. They, they did have the beginnings of, of Internet stuff. They had an AOL site. Um, you know, and, and a few other um, things, but um, but the magazine itself, from a content standpoint, uh, while it touched on all sorts of interesting technology issues and futures, um, did not mention the internet except for one place. Um, and um, and so one of the things that that very quickly happened was Lewis and and the team said we need to figure out you know what we're going to do on the internet. And so in, in early 1993, I want to say mid-April-ish or so, um, Lewis created you know, what they called the Online Brain Trust, and they had a bunch of people both inside and outside the company coming in to talk about exactly this question. And, I, and Wired, um, or Lewis asked me to join that, and I did. So I ended up spending essentially Fridays, uh, these Friday afternoons, um, for most of 1993 in the office. And I was, in fact, at, I think at one point I, I was on the masthead as a virtual employee um, <laughs> and, and, and done fully with the permission of, of the bank that I was working at because, you know, we were all investors. Mm -hmm. And so um, really what happened was, was a, a sort of process of, of wooing on both sides happened through 1993. 
And and Wired had 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 a couple of um, young, uh, mostly sort of uh, you know Stanford and and uh, Berkeley kinds of computer science guys starting to hang out as well. Um, and so there was code being written. There was websites that were just starting to be built. I don't remember the er- earliest website for Wired was, but it was sometime in 1993. Mm-hmm. And um, and and in, by end of 1993, it was a probably a seven eight person entity in in a 20 person company that had almost no capital. And so it was at that point that Lewis sort of realizing that he had a lot of talented tech people, but not a lot of talented tech business people. Um, he called me up and said, why don't you come in and help us figure out what this online thing should be? And so um, so I joined in March of 93, with, uh, I'm sorry, 94, with the express purpose and goal. I joined, I was the CTO, um, and with the express goal of figuring out what Wired's online business should be. And, and so in, in March of 93, sorry, 94, we wrote the business plan um, for what became Hotwired. We sort of got approval and, and a little bit of money carved out um, from uh, from the money that Wired had to, to go build it. And we spent the summer of 1994 building it. Uh, I read, obviously, the the Wolf uh, book, Wired, a Love, a Love Story. Um, and he sort of paints the picture that Lewis was maybe a little reticent to, to do the online stuff. It, is that accurate? Is that how you remember it? Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember both the history and the book because I've certainly read the right, book. I right. was, I was definitely a participant in the book. Um, well, and Gary's the, a friend. What he, what he's, the main point he was making is that is that Lewis was like, well, I'm not going to do this unless it's it's going to you know contribute to the bottom line. Yes. So he wasn't. He didn't. It seemed like he didn't want to experiment just for experiment's sake. That's 100 percent true. What what happened was my mandate as a business plan builder. Um, was we're building a business here. We're not building a, a project. We're not building a, a product. Uh, we're building a business. Um, what happened was in January of 1994, Wired got its first real round of money. It was $3.5 million from Condé Nast. Um, and it was a very simple, sign new house, loved what was going on, wrote a check. And, and it was all about the magazine. You know, he, he didn't know anything about that. I, I remember at one point around then, I, so I sat down at my desk and I took him through the internet. I believe that was the first time he'd ever seen a, a web browser or anything, you know, internet related. Um, and so, so Wired actually did have some money, but that didn't mean, you know, go, go spend. And this is, you know, as you can imagine, well before internet bubbles and anything like that, the, there was no VCs, there was no nothing that were, you know, running around trying to give us large amounts of money. So, so we really lived in a world where three and a half million was all we ever had. Um, and so, uh, so it was reticence is the wrong word, um, uh, to, to build the, the company. It was, um, he was not going to do it unless it was done properly as a full-fledged business effort. Um, and that was fine by me because that's what I like to do. I'm not a, I'm not a blue sky kind of, you know, project guy, build it and they will come. I'm a, how do we make a, a business work? And so, um, you know, that, like I, I often say that a lot of the things that we did uh, and that were credited for were really not brilliant decisions. They were constraints that we had no choice. You know, if I'm writing a business plan in March of 94 for an online business that has to make money, and this is pre-SSL, you know, Netscape uh, was created April 1st. Um, so actually the month after I wrote my business plan for Hotwired. 
Um, and they didn't really launch a browser that was sort of stable and usable until around the same time that we were launching Hotwired in, in September, October of 94. Right. And SSL was, I think, a year or two later. Right. So, so there was no credit cards. There was no, no other way to, to make money but getting advertisers to pay. And so, um, so you know, once, once we sort of wrote a plan that talked about creating new content, creating original content, not repurposing other content, um, and getting advertisers to fund it, um, I would say there was no reticence on Lewis. There was, there was um, excitement. There was certainly concern that we do it correctly. Um, but, um, but I think at that point, it was, it was full steam ahead. Um, before we do get into the advertising, because I, I do want to get into that, but what is the vision that you come up with? Because one of the, one of the things that you're also doing, there's no other really uh, web-based publications at this point. So you, you don't want to just put magazine content on the web. You want to put new stuff up. But what is that new stuff? What is the vision that you come up with? Yeah, well, one of the problems, and again, I'll keep coming back to constraints, one of the problems we had as a monthly magazine, um, and, and this is a monthly magazine. I don't know what monthlies are like today, but these are monthly magazines where you're essentially three months ahead of your production cycle. So, you know, you're closing issues three months before it has to go on newsstand. You're then going to printers. You're waiting a couple of weeks for the magazines to get out of the printers and into circulation and hit newsstands. And, and there's just a tremendous lag. So, you know, a, a thing that you're working on in April of, of 1994 isn't going to hit newsstands till, till sort of June, July of, of 94. And, you know, we were in an area, technology, that things were breaking a lot. There was a, a you know, break, break, stories were breaking, you know, things, mm -hmm. there was a lot of new stuff happening. And, you know, and, and if you're having to be three months ahead of your production, you have to be six to nine months ahead of your story to get it assigned and to get the art and, and everything. So, so, you know, again, if you think about the constraint we had sitting there, when we wanted to, to write something relevant, we were really asking what's relevant in six months from now or nine months from now. And so a lot of what we focused on with the, with the media strategy of Hotwired was simply how to complement what we already had in the magazine. So the things that we did um, tended to be focused on news and especially gossip, which was very popular. Um, interesting things on the internet, you know, that would be dated in six months, but are very relevant today. Um, and, and then things that you can't do in a physical paper magazine. Here's an interesting audio file. Here's an interesting video file. Here's, um, sort of artwork and, and more creative interactive experiences. So, uh, even things like muds and chat rooms and stuff, you know, we just really looked at all the ways that we could sort of tell the wired story, but with the medium of, of a, a sort of immediately uh, interactive internet. So to be clear, um, like, like, let's say, you know, Larry Ellison had stepped down, you know, the week after <laughs> Hotwired launches, would you have done a piece on that in Hotwired? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that we wouldn't, we didn't launch Wired News until mm -hmm. two years later. That was, that was 1996. Um, and so by Wired News, absolutely. I mean, we had, we had, I don't know what the peak, 20 reporters who were breaking stories and doing exactly those kinds of stories. Um, in 1994, it was more of um, columnist-based, think-piece-based. We had interesting guys um, like Andrew Leonard, Michael Schrag, who were writing um, sort of stories that were 
that were relevant, but more analytical than just reporting. So like, you know, one of the things, one of the stories I remember Michael Schrag wrote sometime around then was um, uh, British uh, Airlines and American Airlines had had just announced um, a, a major code share agreement, you know, which was relatively unusual at that point. And and Michael wrote a whole think piece about how, uh, and it was an immediate think piece. It was a came out the day after the, the this announcement happened, about how these kind of information system mergers, which is really what a code share is, is is a whole new way to look at how companies can partner. You know, and it used to be BA would have to buy American Airlines or something that just became a real physical moving of assets and money around. And that the idea that we were really just having an announcement that was a linking of information systems. I mean, it was a perfect wired story for that era. Again, it was a story that uh, we could tell the day after it was announced. Um, and, it, and it had the sort of think piece philosophy kind of angle um, that Wired brought to it, as opposed to just the general reporting of this happened to that kind of story. So I am going to be speaking to a bunch of people also around, you know, the launch of Hotwired is also the anniversary of the, the first banner ads, I guess, somewhat infamously. So I'll be speaking to like uh, Joe McCambly soon and um, uh, Rick Boyce and, and hopefully several other people. But can you give me some of the details um, in terms of, you know, you, you've decided that advertising is the model for this project. Um literally on the level of how do you decide how big the ad is where it's going to be served you know that what give me some of those details and, and how you guys thought that sort of stuff through sure so the the size of the ad, ad um, was a very again pragmatic decision at that point most monitors were 13 inches sort of on the order of 640 by 480 color was not something you could assume um, black and white was still not unusual. Um, and so when we were designing the first page, we took a sort of one-third, one-third, one-third approach. One-third for the advertisement, one-third for the, the, the masthead or the, you know, the logo of the, the section that you were on, and then one-third the beginning of the text. So you could actually see, see your ad, see what section you were on, and then start to have a little bit of a pull into the story itself. Um, and so, you know, the first ads really fell just within that, that basic layout. Um, and, and that was the constraint. Um, from the actual selling of it and, and, and all, I mean, there was a couple of things, again, that we sort of, you know, we were just limits on what we had. I mean, we, we had a, a, I don't remember the exact size, but a relatively small ad sales force at the magazine. We knew we were going to leverage that. Um, and uh, AT&T, which had been a big ad uh, advertiser in Wired Magazine, had already said, we hear you're doing something online, we're in. Um, you know, so that that sort of now famous, you're going to click on this. I forget the exact wording, but, you know, you will click on this thing. Right. And um, that AT&T. So you know, AT&T essentially, I think we we did the business plan in March, I think by April or May. Jane Metcalf, you know, who, who led a lot of the ad sales efforts, had already gotten a call from AT&T saying we're in. Um, and so, you know, Jane came to me and said, great, well, what are they in for? You know, what are, what are we going to charge them? What are they, what are we going to sell them? And so the next couple of months became the design process that ended up in that one third, one third, one third idea. And, um, and then from there, we just started looking at content areas and, you know, we talked about the sort of column and gossip base. We talked about the art ones and we ultimately came to what I think started as 10 sections and ended at 12 or 14 sections. And um, we had a very 
very sort of linear approach at that point. There was no ad servers. You know, we were writing everything ourselves, including the content. You know, there's no CMS. There's no ad servers. There was barely a, a web server at that point. And Brian Bellendorf, who uh, helped get Apache going, was our engineer. So he was sort of simultaneously writing the code for Hotwired and helping the Apache project give us a stable web server. Um, and so what we decided to do was just quite simply sell one advertisement against one content section. And $10,000 was a round number that made the numbers work. So we, we tried it and, you know, everybody sort of seemed to buy it. Um, and so it, at that point, it just became a, a sort of an editorial calendar kind of approach where we said, okay, we have this art site, we have this music site, we have this news site, we have this link site. And we tried to match as much as possible advertisers to set to sections, you know, so when I was talking to um, the people at, for instance, Mesner Viteri, uh, which was an ad agency back then that amongst other things had Volvo as a client, they said Volvo is very interested. We said, great, we have this section called on the road where we were going to send a reporter to go do something you know, on the road and send in reports. Um, one of the most famous ones was he got into the Wiener mobile, the, the Oscar Mayer Wiener mobile and went across country filing you know, sort of broadsides from the road. Um, and so we had a section called On the Road and it was sponsored by um, uh, by, by Volvo. Um, you know, and we just, one by one, we sort of matched up an advertiser too. So there was no ad server. If you went to that section on the road, you saw the Volvo ad. If you hit reload, you saw the same Volvo ad. And um, and it was sort of that simple at that point. There was there was really no no idea of, of targeting or any of the other things that we've and come you to. Had, you didn't have any analytics or anything like that either, right? Well, we did. We, we processed our logs. So um, we did give once a week a um, both a, a number of pages or, or, or ad views um, and, uh, and click-through rate. So, you know, we, we, we definitely gave them once a week those kinds of numbers. We made no commitments because we just, quite frankly, had no idea what to commit to. And it was just easier... Um, it was easier just to be honest with people and say, you know, we're not going to give you any kind of pricing guarantees. We're not going to give you anything. You're doing this because you want a seat at the table. You're going to be, you know, you got special uh, announcements and, you know, we did some cross promotion in Wire Magazine. Um, you know, so they were they were doing it because they wanted to be part of the club of pioneering this new medium. Uh, and, you know, we all knew the money would be wrong. We didn't know in which direction, but we knew we'd figure it out later. Did you, did you have to do any handholding like for with Volvo for example um Volvo might not have had a website at that point like did you have to say okay you can either just have the ad or it can click and send people somewhere maybe you want to set something up did you have to help people get what this new medium was going to do yeah 100% we actually mandated that um those ads clicked to pages on our site um, because we just didn't want to have any kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, we didn't want to have any kind of uh, breakdown in experience. So the way it worked for your $10,000, you got that ad on the top of the page and then you got three other pages on our site. And, um, from there you could link off to your own site. You could do whatever. Um, and there were, I don't remember offhand who, but there were definitely advertisers who had nothing but the sort of microsite on Hotwired, um, that we provided. And, um, you know, one of the shared histories and, and another person you should talk to uh, to understand what was going on is Jonathan Nelson at Organic Online, okay. you know, which ended up becoming a very big agency and, and, and getting bought. Um, but they were a floor above us in the building and friends, we all hung out together. And, and so when advertisers came in and didn't have an ad uh, a website, 
we would send them to Jonathan and Jonathan would actually uh, build those couple of pages that we would then host. Um, and, and vice versa, Jonathan was getting clients that said, you know, this is great. I'm building a website, but now what do I do? And he would say, well, go talk to Andrew and put it on Hotwired. And so, you know, we had this very symbiotic effort where we were building the media and the ads and he was building websites for people. And I would say probably half of the content that advertisers created on the original Hotwired came out of organic online. Do you remember at all uh, what sort of click-through rates the ads got? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I was reading a, a thread on Quora where people were sort of saying things like it was 78%. And, and quite, quite honestly, I don't remember. And I don't think those people remember either. Um, they were ridiculously high. Um, the first couple of weeks, people clicked on everything. Um, this was really not just the first advertising on the Internet, but it was the first real proprietary media created content. Um, you know, so it, it, it was it was something that people were clicking on every single page and ads were just as interesting content as our content. So in the in the early days, we probably did have on the order of, of 70 to 80 percent click throughs on a lot of the ads. Um, it quickly settled down, though. But at the same time, um, it probably normalized around two percent, one to two percent. And I would say for the rest of 2000, sorry, 1994 and, and well into 1995, um, if, if someone's click-through rates fell below 2%, you know, we knew the banner wasn't a good banner and that we had to, we had to help them to make it better. Flipping back to the, the content side of it. Um, so Hotwired is launched and, and I, were you, were you guys pleased with the launch? The, uh, was it successful based on, on your, your plans? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the plans were not metrics based plans. So it wasn't that we had a certain number of page views or audience or anything like that. It was it was wired had to do something that uh, made a important stand on what the Internet and the Web should be. And, um, you know, I think we we didn't get as much hype as as the magazine had gotten after it launched. But it was close, and um, we had our own crews, you know, from CNN and others coming through, and it was definitely a story. You know, we were in in deep conversations with guys like uh, Walter Isaacson, who was running uh, a lot of Time Inc.'s uh, process at that point, including Pathfinder, mm -hmm. and you know, we ended up being heavily influential on them. Um, you know, CNET launched uh, probably four or five months later, as I would say, the second real attempt at, at what we were doing, and. You know, they clearly were influenced a lot by what we were doing. And um, and so, yeah, you know, from a from a we don't know where the long term business is, but what we have, whatever we do has to be meaningfully interesting and, you know, take some stands and and really push where we think this medium should go. Um, we felt very happy with with the process. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. 
Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. The, um... The, the controversy about the, the registration wall, um, again, I'm going to have to reference the Wolf book, but it, it almost makes it seem like it was a, like a, a generational divide rose up in the office and, and, and the, the young kids were, you know, morally opposed to the registration wall and it eventually comes down. But can you, do you remember any of the details around that debate? Sure. Sure. It was. It was a little bit of generational, but it was more philosophical um, in the and I don't I don't I don't know what labels to use, but I would say there was a set of people who came from honestly the, the rave culture, but you know, the sort of the 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 cutting edge of sort of quote unquote cyber thinking, you know, the guys who were reading the 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 Neil Stevenson books and, and all that. And not that we all didn't, but you know, that sort of were living in that sort of future world. Um, and, and, and I think they saw a purity of the medium, uh, which meant you don't put registration systems, but they said a lot of things like, for instance, at one point, um, in the design process, um, the designers had some fonts that they really wanted to use. And, you know, Wired as a magazine was very well known for its design. Um, and there were no real font model on, on the web at that point. You know, it was whatever Arial, Helvetica, you know, that sort of came with the browser, and so the idea of let's take a let's take essentially a, a page like Photoshop, let's create something interesting and let's make a JPEG with the right fonts. So for this title, rather than having just a bunch of text and HTML, let's just put a, a, a JPEG, you know, that looks nicer. Um, and that was a religious battle because, you know, there were some people who said this looks nice. This fits with the wired look and feel and, and our brand and everything we're about. And others said, you don't understand how HTML works. You never do that. You, you put in text, you put in an H1 tag, and the H1 tag is formatted by the browser however it's supposed to be formatted. And, and this was a really knockdown, drag out discussion. Um, and so I would say that registration was the most visible of all the battles, but these kinds of philosophical principles um, were, were just segmented out the 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 team at at Hotwired and quite frankly the team that that sort of saw it as a pure medium that we had to had to um, you know protect by only using HTML and by not having registration they all left and went elsewhere uh, after the launch because they just saw that what we were trying to do was build a media property in a business not protect the HTML you know beauty of the of the of the language. Um, so, so yeah, it was a controversy. Um, you know, I sort of, I saw both sides and, you know, I, as a business person, I sort of certainly leaned towards and supported the registration system. Um, I was also amongst the first to lead the charge to taking it off, uh, months later when we realized that it was just not, um, it was hampering our ability to grow. And also you're not alone in the market anymore. Not only are there, you know, things like CNET and Pathfinder now, but also, you know, the, the search engines are coming out. And so, you know, you're going to need, you're going to need inventory uh, to compete with the inventory, the, the almost infinite inventory of the search engines. Sort of. I mean, we honestly never really focused on inventory because, 
the problem with the search engines, as far as we were concerned in those days, is that they were they were a hundred x what we were, and and CNET and you know you know it, at that point if you had a search engine like if you know InfoSeek was the one who led the charge, um, and then Yahoo later, um, they had millions of page views when we were in the thousands and tens of thousands. So you know there, I don't I didn't think just being practical that taking off my, my registration system was going to make me go from, from thousands to millions. It was a content choice too. You know, we, we, we like Apple, like BMW, we definitely saw ourselves as a premium brand wired as a premium brand. And so, um, you know, yes, taking the registration off clearly meant more people could view our site or would view our site. Um, but when we wanted to really get bulk, we launched our own search engine, which is Hotbot. You know, a, a sort of year and a half later. Um, Hotbot is th- is that an attempt to to grab um, more inventory? Because then, if you can't create your own search engine, go ahead and create your own search engine. Then you can get those levels of traffic. What was what was the motivation behind Hotbot? Yeah, it was a hundred percent. We had a great sales force that was selling like crazy. That was inventory constrained, and. Um, and the we can build in a search engine too um, was was a, just a very pragmatic decision around around getting more inventory, um, and that's why we didn't build it. We went and partnered with a company called Ink to Me, um, you know, and, and it was a it was a nice deal where essentially they provided all the back end infrastructure of the, the the crawl and and the serving up of pages, and we did the design and the marketing and the branding and the sales, and uh, it was a great great relationship for for both companies. Uh- and going into that deeper, I mean, it, Wired Ventures is not just Hot Wired. It does become a whole bunch of things, um, things like Wired News and stuff like that. So, uh, if you could just rec- recollect for us some of the other projects that that you guys bubble up around this time. Yeah, the, the nice thing about the internet, and you know, this is sort of obvious, but maybe at the time a little bit novel. Um, was that the whole top-down process uh, could sort of get turned on its head. You know, so Time Inc. very famously, you know, would sort of plan a magazine in sports, like Sports Illustrated, and then, you know, design it for two or three years and then launch it and market it in, you know, seven, eight years, and maybe it turns profitable, and, you know, then it turns into a machine sort of 15 years later. And so, and that's the way magazines happened back then. In fact, still happen. Um and and the nice thing about about Hotwired or the uh, the internet, let's say, is that you don't have that level of of either investment that you need to make or um, or sort of a top down approach. So what ended up happening very quickly, you know, was we the senior folks had had this idea of the things that we've talked about, the gossip and the news and the arts and stuff. Um, but then two of our production people uh, decided to make a little site on the side. Uh, that was just going to make fun of everybody, including including us, uh, and that became suck, uh, which which became very very popular. Actually, um, let me interrupt you there because for the sure. for the chapter episode for for this topic, I ended up going deeper into into suck than I thought I was going to. But uh, do you remember uh, when you first heard about suck? Like, did uh, it, is it oh, true? Sure. Is oh, it true God. that 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 no one knew that it was internal at Wired? Uh, well, depending who you mean by no one, um, I, no, I mean, it's, it's not a hundred percent true. It was the first couple that came out. Um, it was done because one of the deals that we had with employees, cause we couldn't pay people a lot and we did have good internet connection at that time was that you could bring a box in and plug it into our ethernet. 
Um, so, so we had a lot of people running side projects very well, uh, sort of talked about. And so, you know, I knew these production guys, uh, Carl Stedman in particular, I knew he had a box on our network and he had a bunch of things going on. Um, when I first read Suck, and it was within the first week of its launch, um, I didn't make the connection. Um, but I would say by week two, I already knew, um, you know, and, and you can do things like trace routes and stuff and sort of you right. know, figure out. So um, it, it clearly, I think Lewis didn't know for a lot longer. And there was others, you know, we did keep it a bit of a secret um, for a while, even within the organization. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I knew relatively quickly and um, we didn't want it to get out outside of, of Wired, um, not so much for any other reason than just it was the fun mystery of the thing because you know everything was under pseudonyms and it was it was sort of part of the whole site's mystery and and um and approach that it was this sort of thing on the side like the court jester sort of making fun of everybody um even though it was sort of very explicitly a part of the same thing it was making fun of um but there was others too web monkey was a similar kind of approach where um a bunch of our production and engineering folks we're doing some really cutting edge stuff with the medium and um, you know, I'm regularly in discussion with both the guys at Microsoft and the guys at Netscape about sort of wants and needs. And um, someone had the idea, I believe it was Jeff Veen, but I, I could be wrong on that, but he, he was certainly part of that crowd um, that, you know, there was no reason not to sort of talk about the things that we were doing. And so WebMonkey started very similarly as just a way to have our existing engineers and production folks um, actually write stories about things. So we would, on the one hand, launch a new feature, on the other hand, launch a story about the new feature we just launched. And, uh, and that became very quickly not only uh, one of our most popular sections, but also one of our most possible uh, popular places to have advertisers on. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it led to tools like, you know, Adobe and, and others being purchased because it was talking about, here's how I used Photoshop for this weird effect, or here's how I used... Um, I don't know, you know, uh, the sort of our, our database, you know, to sort of do something that, you know, people didn't realize could be done. Um, and so, uh, you know, it was just fun because it was you you had as, as sort of CEO of this organization, you know, you had these meetings with all the senior editors and you talk about sort of this long calendar. Like, you know, we knew in 1996 we wanted to cover the presidential election and be the first Internet site to sort of really follow a presidential trail. Um, and at the same time. You know, we had young guys in the organization sort of pitching us on we want to build a site called WebMonkey or we want to you know, do the, these kinds of fun things. And, and we had both going on at the same time. This is a question that I know could possibly be an entirely other discussion. But um, why did why was it so hard for Wired and Hotwired or both or separately to ever IPO? Uh, in the midst of the dot-com madness? <laughs> well, so what happened was we were too early. Um, and uh, and I, I've often joked that we pioneered sort of the bubble bursting before everybody else did. We just, we got out in the wrong time. We, there was um, Yahoo, Excite, um, InfoSeq, Lycos, and CNET all went ahead of us. Um, and what happened was is we, when we funded Hotwired, we ended up funding it as a separate company, a, a, a partially owned subsidiary. Um, and I did that around, I raised, I raised $7 million in 1995 for just Hotwired for at the same time. Wired Sorry. Ventures, right? 
Uh, this was for actually it was called Hotwire Adventures. Okay. This was, yeah. So we had so why at at that point by the end of 1995, I think I was about 70 percent owned by Wired Ventures. I was like 20 percent owned by outside investors and 10 percent owned by management, um, or something like that. And um, and so what what happened was is you know we probably could have just filed to go public at that point at the same time as all those other search engines were going public and CNET. Um, but we sort of realized that by splitting the two companies off, we were sort of getting into these weird issues about um, a sort of the brand, you know. And, and when we decided in late 1995 we wanted to build Wired News, it became a little bit of a okay. So is Wired News under the magazine or under the Hot Wired asset? Because Hot Wired has, has all the infrastructure for building websites, but Wired Magazine has all the writers and relationships to publish the site. So we sort of realized we'd made a mistake. And in early 1996, we remerged the companies back and and did one round uh, that sort of funded the entire new Wired Ventures. Um, and so what happened was is that delayed our ability to go public until essentially the summer and the window closed. So those other search engines got out, the window closed. We tried to go out in October and it was already at that point too late. Um, I mean, I don't want to say there was just timing. There was other issues about the story we were telling, but um, but it just got too late. And um, and then we sort of got into a place where we actually were running out of cash and needed to sell. Um, and so, you know, when when both Sign Newhouse and New and um, um, Condé asked asked to buy the magazine, and then Lycos asked to buy Hotwired, um, which was late '98, we sold right before the bubble really started to pick up. So I think had we been able to make it a little bit longer, we probably would have gone public in 1999. And, and quite honestly, it would have been the worst thing ever because, you know, we would have gotten hit like everybody else did in 2000 with the crash. Did you stay on after the Lyco purchase? No, no. I actually left in um, in early 98. Um, and uh, I, had, I had brought in a woman named Beth Vanderslice uh, to be my number two. And when I went on the road to sort of help try and get the IPO going, uh, the company did actually better than it had ever done. And I decided she should run this company, not me. Um, so, um, so I took myself out in uh, early 98 and, um, you know, was a fan and, and shareholder from the side. Um, but, um, you know, that's when I moved on to venture capital. Mm -hmm. So a lot of almost everyone that I'm talking to in these series, um, you know, what we're talking about is is it almost exactly 20 years ago? And so I like to ask people, you know, looking back 20 years later, what, what you think of stuff, but you still have with things like, you know, Pando, your, your, your foot in the online media world. So specifically to you, I wanted to, to know, looking at what online media has become, what online publishing and things like that has become, what do you, what do you think of it now? Is it, has it evolved beyond what you were dreaming of 20 years ago? Is it better or worse? Um, yeah, well, the answer is yes, it's better. It's worse. Um, I think a lot of things, I mean, I, I, I'm involved with Pando. I, I actually have investments in a number of other media sites, um, that are out there. And, and, you know, my, my entree into this whole world is as a media guy, I was a, an editor of a high school newspaper. And, um, I just, when I was in banking, I was in the media group and in investment banking and, and so I've just always done things that involve um, media and, and Pando is just one in a long line of those right now. Um, I think as an industry, we've done really well at, at sort of filling a lot of the, the sort of content niches 
Uh, I think we've done a really good job lately, especially with guys like BuzzFeed and others of sort of pioneering new ways to consume media that really couldn't exist in any world but the internet. Um, so um, I'm thrilled with the status of media. I think mailing lists, you know, email is one of those technologies that every five years is declared dead and then two years later is declared back. Um, and I think email and, and email mailing lists is another one of those. Um, so I, I love where content is right now. Um, what I don't love, um, and it's why I started a company uh, a couple of years ago, is I think we've sort of hit too extreme of a dependence on advertising. You know, the decision to launch advertising on Hotwire, as I mentioned earlier, had all to do with the fact that you couldn't take, take money from customers. There was no credit cards. There was no SSL on the Internet. Um, but historically and through all of media, there's always been a user pay component. Um, and in fact, at, at Wired Magazine, we specifically charged a high cover price uh, and a high subscription price that we did not discount um, because it made our audience better. We got more CEOs. We got more uh, higher sort of value people. So not only did we make money from the subscriptions, but we then had better CPMs for advertisers because we had a much better audience than if we just gave the magazine away for free. And so I think the Internet's in a little bit of the same place right now where, you know, the the everything that's happening with real-time buying and the exchanges is, 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 is both good and the obvious logical progression of where this technology is going, but it devalues the content creation. You know, content creation at this point is really just a way of aggregating um, people that then the behavioral targeters can go after and slice and dice. Um, but it's really hard to get credit for having a good audience. Um, and, you know, as others, I mean, Tim Cook most recently have said, you know, if you're not the, uh, if you're not paying, you're, then you are the product. And so, you know, my, my personal point of view and both, and the reason I started this company, Tugboat, which is really designed to help build that infrastructure, is that we need to add the second revenue line back to online media, which is users will pay for things. Uh, it's not going to be 100%. It's not going to even be 50%. But I think tilting at 20 to 30% of, of a normal online media site's revenue coming from users um, is a completely reasonable goal that we as an industry really need to go after. And is that with things like conferences, live events? What, what are, what are the, the pieces of this? It's, it's all of the above. Uh, for Pando, it's actually long, uh, con uh, conferences and live events. Um, it's a way to sort of have an in-person experience that goes beyond just reading a website. For others, it's proprietary content and subscriptions. Um, you know, one of our newsletter folks on Tugboat, um, as part of you paying uh, him $5 a month, he has a, besides his daily newsletter, he has a weekly newsletter where he talks about bigger, different issues than he can talk about in the daily stuff. Um, for others, it's just flat out paywall kinds of stuff, you know, especially with iOS apps and the things that you can do um, to gate content, um, you know, that makes just sort of a more interesting sort of consumption experience. Um, and for others, it's just it's a, more of an NPR model. It's just I want to support you. Maybe you'll send me a tote bag or a T-shirt, um, but it's it's the realization that you're creating interesting content that you will not get enough advertising dollars to support. So if I send you $20 a year and enough other people send you $20 a year, it becomes a business. Um, it's eBooks, it's all sorts of things. You know, I think we, we have to pioneer that side of the medium the same way we have to pioneer the advertising side. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of time that's been focused lately on whether it's native ads or, you know, just all the different ways that we can create special things to make advertisers happy. 
and we have to spend that same amount of time focusing on what are the things to make to make the consumers and and the and the the, the, the uh, readers of content feel the same way. Um, and you know, I think there's a lot of interesting things out there, and Andrew Sullivan is certainly one that's doing a great job with the Daily Dish. Um, but there's a lot of models that we have to still work on to make this medium really survive into the future. Well, Andrew, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and remembering all this for us. Oh, not at all. It's great to talk about it. It's always fun to, to sort of loosen the cobwebs for a bit and, and go back because it was a lot of fun. If you're enjoying this podcast, there's one simple thing that you can do to help us out. If you do nothing else, just go to iTunes and rate us. One to five stars takes about two seconds. Or give us a review because the weird way that iTunes works is it's not just the number of downloads, it's also the number of ratings and reviews. As always, you can join the conversation at www.internethistorypodcast.com. Get more info, see pictures, and see my full bibliography for each episode. The show's Twitter is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.